Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Which state of the union did you watch yesterday? What is the state of our union? Maybe you, like me, watched the Congressional Women's Working Group give their speeches just hours before President Trump walked into the Capitol. Uh, The state of women is resilient in the face of the Trump administration. Or maybe you watched Stacey Abrams give her Democratic response. The state of our union will always be strong. Thank you, and may God bless the United States of America. Or maybe, just maybe, you watch the real thing. Members of Congress, the state of our union is strong. Are you all alone in there? Everyone else is on the floor? I snagged the only phone booth in here. Yes. Jim Newell is our guy on the hill. It's me. He was there last night as the president delivered his State of the Union. The last time that we checked in, it looked like the State of the Union was going to be canceled. Yeah. You You sent me this note where you said it's every congressional reporter's dream. Yes, it would be. I mean, we were all hoping once the government reopened that they would just forget about that whole rescheduling part and maybe just not do it this year. But alas, they remembered. Set the scene for me a little bit. I mean, you've been there all day, I assume, kind of getting ready. So so what was it like in there? I mean, I have gone on the record many times stating that I hate the State of the Union. I think it's worthless and should be abolished. But it is sort of fun to people watch, um, especially with all these new Democratic members who had never seen one before. Um, you know, it was something that I hadn't seen since the, the speaker's vote at the beginning of the Congress, just how starkly different the Republican and Democratic sides look. I mean, with the exception of 12 women, I, I think it's 12, the Republican caucus is all white men. And all those white men wear blue or dark gray suits. And then you look at the other side of the aisle, it's a much more diverse caucus, and all the Democratic women are wearing white. It almost looks like people are representing, you know, two com- completely different worlds. <laughs> Well, this speech was supposed to be more hopeful than Trump's usual rhetoric. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Yeah, it didn't feel like that to me. It mostly felt like a grab bag, like there was a lot in there. Um, Yeah, and there were reports that he wasn't happy with some of the uh, kumbaya bipartisanship rhetoric that was in the speech and really wanted to stick it a little harder to the Democrats, so... Talk to me. Trump started the speech in a kind of unconventional way, right? Yeah. Usually you wait for the Speaker of the House to say, ladies and gentlemen, members, senators, blah, 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 the president of the United States. And then the president begins a speech. But Trump just sort of started talking, which, you know, I I don't know if it was an accident or not. Maybe not because he maybe he thought he stuck it to Nancy Pelosi there, but I'm sure she was fine with it. 
And I was I was surprised he referenced the investigations really briefly. In the best line of the speech. Yeah. Which I mean somewhat tongue-in-cheek, is when he says, if there is going to be peace and legislation, there cannot be war and investigation. Which is, I mean, that that's definitely, when you think of a... a a line that a bad writer thinks is really brilliant. I mean, that really sticks <laughs> to the top there. Um, Democrats in the chamber laughed after that because it was so, I mean, it's one, it's just a silly concept. Like, if you investigate me, then we can't actually do anything in this country. And then he thought maybe it would be catchy if it rhymed. What did you think of the moments where the wheels seemed to come off the bus a little bit? Like you had you know, the Democratic caucus standing and cheering when President Trump talked about more women having jobs. And it really had this weird feeling of them trolling him. But at the same time, it was really happy. Yeah, it was funny just to watch everyone who had been sitting silently, not really applauding everything, just decide that they were going to have a little bit of a party in the middle of a speech. I mean, that, that there was some... Uh, raising the roof going on among the House Democratic women. There was just, it was like a party in there for like five minutes, and then we went back to dreary, you know, Democrats want to leave the borders open for killers and all of that stuff. So it was it was just this, you know, the typical partisan, what you would expect, uh, and then this one moment of sort of rapturous joy. I was really struck that the biggest applause line in his speech, as I heard it, was about abortion. You mean when he um, talked about legislation to prohibit, quote-unquote, late-term abortion? Yes. So that definitely, I mean, there are a few moments that got Republicans really cheering. Um, that was that was probably the loudest that Republicans got after that moment. What was interesting about that was the way it sort of boxed in Democrats, because he cited Ralph Northam, his comments about abortion, and I expected if Northam also hadn't recently been in a blackface controversy, Democrats maybe would have groaned a little bit more, said they were taking him out of context or something. But they didn't really boo him when he said that. I think they just, it was an awkward position for them to maybe appear as though, or be contorted into appearing as though they were supporting Ralph Northam. So yeah, that was a very strange moment. You know, there was a lot of policy ideation in this speech, a lot of ideas. I wonder if you had to pick a policy proposal that you think actually might stand a chance of making it through this Congress and making it, you know, to the president's desk. Was there something in there that you thought like, oh, this could work? So, I mean, I'm not really sure. I didn't really hear a ton of policy in this speech, to be honest. He talked about working together on lowering prescription drug, drug prices. That's something where it seems like they should be able to do something on it. But again, that hasn't happened yet after lots of different tries in the past. So the only thing that stood out to me where I thought maybe they'll do something was when he talked about HIV AIDS and let's find a way to get this under control and in 10 years we'll decrease the transmission rate. And it struck me as something everyone could agree on. But at the same time, I wasn't sure how they were going to get there, I guess. Right. I mean, it seems like that is something they they could do. And like if you look at President Obama near the end of his presidency, he that's where he first introduced the cancer moonshot that eventually got funding as part of a bigger spending bill. So it seems like, yeah, maybe they could do something on that. But it's, I don't think it's something that they're going to wake up tomorrow drafting the legislation on. But then, of course, like 
the thing that was hanging over this whole thing was in the middle of the speech, he actually said, we only have a few more days left to work out this immigration <laughs> thing. Right. And he and he dedicated a lot of his speech to immigration. He wasn't really saying anything new, though. It didn't sound like to me. No, he wasn't saying anything new. I mean, he was making his case again that walls work and you need walls. And, you know, that obviously, very obviously hasn't worked so far. Jim, you know, I was really struck by the fact that while Trump was talking about immigration, he brought up this family, these three women whose relatives had been killed, allegedly by MS-13. It's still under investigation. I mean, I've just seen that so many times in his speeches now. I mean, the convention, uh, he referenced them, and the several speeches referenced them. Um, he held campaign events uh, with families who, who lost someone uh killed by an illegal immigrant. And he's always, he's used that prop a lot. And it's very uncomfortable because you feel so sorry for these specific people, but he's also using them to make the broader point that he thinks illegal immigrants are unusually dangerous. So it's very, you feel very sad in the moment, but you also, it's just disgusting a little bit the way he's painting a broader population here. You know, the speech is called State of the Union. The idea is that we're bringing people together. But what struck me about this speech is that just definitely isn't what was happening. Like, even if you were just watching the camera trained on Trump, you could see how Nancy Pelosi was kind of doing her own thing. At one point, she like clapped right in President Trump's face. And they only have a few more days to figure out whatever comes next for the budget. I just wonder if if we're any closer on that. No, we're not closer at all, which, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, though, because he could have made it worse. I mean, he could have uh, laid down some conditions that made it harder for negotiators to reach a deal, or he could have really blown up talks saying he's going to declare the national emergency in the speech. So I think I was talking to a bunch of members of the the conference committee that that are negotiating the, the budget deal. And I was asking them, you know, what could he do that would be helpful for you guys tonight? And they were trying to be diplomatic about it. But what they were trying to say essentially was, let us do our work. Don't throw any curveballs into this. I think they feel like left to their own devices, they can probably reach a compromise. They don't know if he'll support it yet, but they could reach something that could pass both houses of Congress. And so, you know, he didn't really do anything in his speech to, to impede their work. And I think they're probably grateful for that. So we'll see. So he didn't use the word national emergency. So... It's better than it could have been. Yeah, he didn't throw, you know, any napalm into this, which is considered a win now (laughs) on Capitol Hill. All right, Jim Newell, thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. When we come back, last night there was one topic it seemed President Trump and Stacey Abrams almost agreed on, the need to fix health care. The next major priority for me and for all of us, should be to lower the cost of health care and prescription drugs and to protect patients with pre-existing conditions. Trump spoke about policy. Abrams got a little more personal. My father has battled prostate cancer for years. To help cover the cost, I found myself sinking deeper into debt. The one thing neither of them got into? how exactly they plan to fix it. To talk about that, we're going to go somewhere else, the campaign trail. Stay with us. 
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The thing I worry about with this topic is like getting yeah. too airy, fairy, theoretical, you know, because that's what it is. Yeah. It's also pocketbook. Right. And whose pocketbook, who's, frankly? Yeah. Whose pocketbook are we all going to reach into to pay for the hip replacements? Jordan Weissman is a policy guy at Slate. Thinks about healthcare, the economy. Otherwise known as our in-house econ nerd. Jordan's been trying to figure out what's going to happen when Washington starts to think big when it comes to healthcare. Because even though the leadership in D.C. is floating these smaller fixes right now, out there on the campaign trail, Democratic presidential candidates are talking about being much more aggressive. They're talking about Medicare for all. Every candidate, almost every candidate's getting asked about this at this point. What are they saying when people ask them? There have been a variety of answers, and some of them have been a little bit more specific or believable than others. The one that got the most attention was definitely Kamala Harris. Jake Tapper asked her that uh, CNN town hall. It's like, let's do away with all that. Let's let's do away with the hassle of dealing with insurance companies. Who of us has, has not had that situation where you got to wait for approval and the doctor says, well, I don't know if your, your insurance company is going to cover this? Let's eliminate all of that. Let's move on. My thing about Kamala Harris is, position on this is that she's been very firm about saying that's this is what she would prefer. She's actually been clearer than most other candidates, that she would prefer a natural Medicare for all system, a single payer system. She also says healthcare is not the first thing on her to-do list as president. She has this other idea that's called the LIFT Act. It's a big middle class tax credit. A very, It's like $3 trillion. And that's actually her first priority. And she has said that repeatedly. And it's very hard to imagine a Democratic president going and passing a single payer bill after They've just spent a lot of political capital passing a $3 trillion tax credit for the middle class. That's, that's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a lot of money. you got to find under the couch cushion. You have to find another billionaire to shake down at that point. Right. <laughs> a few more billion. Actually, at that point, I mean, you're talking about payroll taxes, but uh, she's not the only one who's weighed in on this at Yeah, all. I mean, so we have Kamala Harris, who said Medicare for all. We have Elizabeth Warren, who said something a little more equivocal no, than that. She gave. She didn't answer. She <laughs> she just she danced around it. She hopscotched around that question. She she really does not want to talk about single payer. She actually said her goal is affordable health care for all Americans in the end, which is not necessarily single payer, but she's still being vague. There are different ways we can get there, 
but the key has to be always keep the center of the bullseye in mind, and that is affordable health care for every American. She just allows you to project whatever you want onto her. On her health care, I think she doesn't want to tick off the left because she's trying to get the left to support her if, if Sanders goes down or instead of Sanders, maybe. So she's been vague. Um, Cory Booker actually said no, he does not support getting rid of private insurance because... Even countries uh, that have vast access uh, to publicly offered health care still have private health care. So, no, it's kind of interesting that he said that in light of how Sanders's bill actually works. And we can talk about that later. Because a lot of these candidates have supported this Bernie Sanders Medicare for all bill, right? Yeah, they have. Booker has. Harris has. Warren has. They've all endorsed it. Kirsten Gillibrand has endorsed it. They actually got on a stage with him when he introduced his single payer bill back in 20 or his newest single payer bill back in 2017. And it's fair to ask them if they actually support the bill they endorsed. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, And are they just trying to catch some of the shine? Are they trying to catch some of the shine? Are they trying to, you know, basically make nice with Bernie so he might endorse them later on or, you know, make nice with his supporters? I mean, what what are they actually trying to do? Is it just sort of a general message that, yeah, we like government health care? Or is it that they really like this particular idea that this is the goal? So the Democrats are kind of putting out there this like messy word salad about health care where they're just like, we want it better. We want people covered. And to some extent, that's helped them. Right. It's everyone loves the idea of Medicare for all because it sounds like everyone gets Medicare. But then when you break it down. Yeah. And that's the thing that's sort of been dawning people. There's been a lot of discussion about this Kaiser Family Foundation poll that came out and they do a health tracking poll. And what it's found is that when you tell people that Medicare for all is really single payer, that private insurance will essentially be banned under it, that they will lose their private insurance, um, which is what Bernie's bill effectively does, support for a single payer falls to about 37%. And so suddenly politicians are, are looking at this polling, I think, and saying, hmm, well, how do we answer this question? How do we keep from attaching ourselves too firmly to a position that we might regret in the general? I don't know. I mean, I feel like like I sort of want to deflate the idea that Medicare for all is a new idea, like something that Bernie Sanders dreamed up. Because back in the 60s, when Medicare was created, this was part of the idea. Like, we're going to keep expanding it year after year to more and more people. Bernie didn't make it up. I mean, there have been, yeah, he's the one who popularized it, right? Like, the phrase Medicare for all is blew up because of him. Right. Like, he's the one who figured out you could sell it that way. The problem is he sold Medicare for all, and half the country doesn't realize that that means single payer. He's gotten people to buy into the idea of massively expanded government insurance, which is something a lot of people like. I mean, Barack Obama barely managed to do that, like for all his communicative gifts. You know, Bernie Sanders has been a great evangelist for the idea that we need to open up the programs we have to more people and the government needs to take a stronger role. It's just not clear what people think exactly that means. Well, and there's nothing in there about how to pay for it, right? Um, You know, I think it's actually a little unfair to Bernie because He's gone much more so than Republicans have ever tried when it comes to paying for their bills. He's actually been pretty good about offering potential pay-fors alongside his legislation. You might not think they are enough. You might not think they actually cover the full cost. But when he introduced this bill in 2017, the legislation itself didn't have taxes in it. But there was a whole document that came with it that said ways you could potentially pay for this. And my guess is part of that was he didn't want to try and ask a bunch of Democrats to endorse all these taxes. He wanted, he wanted, which is why it's so yeah. interesting that now we're having the tax conversation at the same time that we're having the Medicare for all conversation to me. Oh, yeah. Well, it's all part of this wave of suddenly leftist thought is in vogue, right? Like, it's, it's so hot right now. The Overton window shifted. 
back in 2015, I was writing about the idea of raising the top tax rate on millionaires to 50, 60, 70 percent. And it felt like a risk. It's not even felt like a risk. It was just like I looked back at the article I wrote then and I spent the first like three paragraphs qualifying about how this shit would never happen. (laughs) Uh, And it was just like this is just and how crazy it was that it would never happen. You know, things have changed. The conversation has changed. And Bernie is a big part of the reason why uh, the rise of the left is, a you know, most of the reason why. I think this is actually a point where it's really helpful to talk about what Bernie's bill does. When we say it bans private insurance, what does that mean? Bernie Sanders' single-payer system looks a lot like Canada's. The idea is it covers all these different services, and private insurance companies aren't allowed to compete. They can't duplicate benefits. All right. So if there's something that Bernie Care doesn't cover, um, then, yeah, private insurance can sell supplemental policy that handles it. And that's how things work in Canada. There are actually a bunch of important things that the uh, provincial health plans don't cover, like often prescription drugs, um, dental, uh, vision. Like these are these are important things. Bernie Care covers basically everything. It doesn't leave a lot of room from what anyone can tell right now for private coverage. Like let me like what Bernie Sanders has designed is very utopian. Even if something like that passed, there are reasons to think people would have qualms with it. You could probably expect there'd be a lot of waiting for medical services. That's a problem that's regular in Canada or we, we see in Canada with this sort of a system because healthcare does get rationed in some ways. I'm going to interrupt Jordan here for a second because I always get a little uncomfortable at this part of the conversation. We start talking out of both sides of our mouths. Like, here's what a healthcare plan would look like. But then, oh, by the way, this is probably never going to pass. And it's true. These are proposals, but they're changing how people think about what's possible. Which is why back in October, President Trump wrote an op-ed in USA Today, shooting down the idea of Medicare for all. It's why earlier this week, reporters at The Intercept put Nancy Pelosi on blast when her office reassured insurance executives that Medicare for all was dead on arrival. The Republicans, big business, they are all taking Medicare for all seriously. And now the Democratic presidential hopefuls, they're going to have to decide if they are, too. Democrats need to decide what their actual kind of ideal health care system is. We know that Medicare for all is very popular and everyone loves that. But do we really want a single payer system or do we want to try and build something that looks like another universal care system elsewhere in the world? The one nice thing that Medicare for all has done as a idea, as a North Star, as a slogan, whatever you want to call it, has gotten everyone to agree that everyone freaking deserves access to some kind of government plan easy access that they can afford. You know, the, you know, right now what we have in the United States is the right to buy private insurance. That's not sufficient. <laughs> we have we've realized the right to buy private insurance is not enough and we needed to take it further. And that's what Bernie has done is that everyone needs access to some kind of government care. And then where do you take it from there? Is that a single payer system? Is it something where it's a high public private hybrid? And really in the end, you're talking about to what extent you want the private sector involved. Jordan Weissman, thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. All right, that's the show. What Next is hosted by me, Mary Harris. The show is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Anna Martin. Help other people find the show by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Talk to you tomorrow. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.